The College Game Day podcast is presented by Old Dominion Freight Line, helping the world keep promises. A Red River Renaissance, and on a Saturday dubbed Opportunity Saturday, turns out only one team could take advantage, and a dumb loses more than smart wins that might well retire the troll. This is the College Game Day podcast for Monday, October 9th. I can speak. I missed the podcast all of last week. Uh, gleefully for Pete Thamel, Ryan McGee, Bill Connolly, Taylor, Sarah. They were so delighted that I couldn't speak. They could get a word in edgewise that way. Reese Davis and Pete Thamel here to start. Ryan McGee will join us in a little while. Um, Pete, first of all, glad to be back. I really enjoy this time that we have together to just uh, talk ball. And before we turn our attention to the upcoming week, which I think is going to be a really good one, highlighted by what might be as good a game as we'll get all season, Oregon and Washington. One that probably takes that title right now was the one that you and I saw from inside the Cotton Bowl on Saturday in the Red River rivalry, Oklahoma and Texas, which started as theater of the absurd and wound up in one of their most dramatic endings uh, in a series that has been filled with them, but that one is, was right there close to the top. Yeah, I just, I, I hadn't been to that game in a few years, Reese, uh, probably since pre-COVID. And you forget the the feeling in that stadium, right? You forget the the undulations of momentum and you can just feel in your like rib cage as you're standing on the sideline, the energy shift from one end to the other. And I believe there were five possessions in the first six minutes, um, including an interception. Let's talk about the interception for a second. You and I both noticed the same thing being on <laughs> yeah, the field. So yeah, Quinn, yeah. your second play of the game, throws a terrible pick, um, it, just a, an ill-advised throw. Um, I've done a hit on game day. You and I have talked about this in the past. Uh, Brent Venables, the former Clemson defensive coordinator, now Oklahoma's head coach, is a noted sign stealer. Perfectly legal. Nothing wrong with it. Get better signals if you don't want them stolen. We have no, I have no issues with it. It's an unethical thing. They're very good at it, though. And the first five teams that played them huddled. Texas, the first actual time they had a chance to put a signal into the game. If it wasn't stolen... There was a choreographed dance party from like the 80s on the Oklahoma defense because I counted six dudes all going up and giving the same signal. They were practically spinning around. Um, they were so seemingly giddy, and then they, everybody kind of shifted and moved, and then they went and caught the ball. Now, you saw the same thing there, right? Yeah. Oh, no question. Stutzman particularly, I don't know how he got the signal or whatever, but he was... He was move, frantically moving everybody like, I know what's coming. Everybody else moved, and it was uh, it was brilliant. Now, I don't know for a fact beyond uh, all doubt that they had the play, but I believe in the depths of my soul that they had the play. That's still on yours, not to throw it to the team in Crimson, but it was, uh, it was really, it epitomized that Oklahoma was ready. Oklahoma is not as talented as Texas. They're not as deep as Texas. And I think I think they had to play out of their minds to get the result that they got on Saturday. And all credit to them for doing so. But that moment, second play, showed you better bring it because we are ultra prepared for the game. They were ready on uh, at every angle. 
Yeah, I'd be curious. Brent Venable said it was his 15th one of these. Yeah. And he was part of that Bob Stoops dominating Mac Brown, Mr. Mm-hmm. February run. I would imagine he's got like, he's like 11 or 12 out of those 15. Um, now, obviously, they lost last year in humiliating fashion when he was the head coach. But as an assistant, he's had a lot of success. And I feel like that game, managing the game and managing the environment and managing the momentum is as critical as any game played in college football uh, every uh, every year. But what a what a fantastic fantastic finish game everything. Right? Well, it was yeah, it was perfect. You know, and you and I were standing there watching the game together and we actually had a a reasonable disagreement um, on an early drive in which I thought that should have been ruled a fumble. It was on the field. It was overturned that Oklahoma got the ball. And there were a couple other calls early on that I thought went against Oklahoma. And whether you agree with my take on it, that it should have been a fumble or not. Then they had the big hit, you know, on the goal line that caused the ball to pop into the air and the interception to which I started telling you ball don't lie. I mean, <laughs> because he got the ball back. But the reason I bring that up was not just because of that. It's to your point about managing the emotions. I thought Oklahoma had a couple of close Tough calls go against them early on. And you felt like the way they'd come out with their hair on fire, that maybe they should have been more in command of the game than they were. And I thought Brent did a really good job, and their team did a really good job, of not overreacting when something didn't go their way. And that that's to your point exactly, because one of the things I love about being in that old stadium glitchy ribbon boards, uh, questionable scoreboards. You got to turn around only to one side to find a really good place for down and distance. But one of the great things about being in there is that every two-yard play is exhilarating for half the stadium and agonizing for the other. And it's a difficult place in which to control your emotion. And I thought Oklahoma was spectacular. And do it in Texas too. Texas didn't get sideways. I never felt they got sideways when, you know, something happened. But Oklahoma being the underdog, being the team that I still feel, even though they deserve to be ranked where they are, is not as over is not as talented or as deep as Texas. They are the ones that you could say, okay, it's more important for them to manage that because they don't have the same margin for error. And I thought they, they did, did so brilliantly. Yeah, and it wasn't how you would have thought Oklahoma would win this game. And you, you can correct me if you, you think I'm, I'm wrong on this, but I never felt like Oklahoma exerted their tempo, Reese, right? The coaches I talked to without Oklahoma could win thought they would really have to do that. Now, they play, they had some moments of nice tempo, including that last drive, quite frankly. But that's not – exerting your tempo means – like it becomes a factor in how the game is dictated. And it was a difficult game to dictate tempo in any way because it was just so herky-jerky and so back and forth. It was like a ride on that slingshot where you have to go to the chiropractor at the uh, at the end. Everything went. But that said, like it, you, you have to – it will not be a linear path to victory in that game. Last year was just an astounding anomaly, right? It will be momentum shifts back and forth. And you may have to drive – what was it, uh, 75 yards in a minute two to win the game. And that's exactly it's exactly what they did. Um, so it was uh, all credit. Dylan Gabriel, it was, you know, unbelievable drive. He was good, Reese. I don't think he was like, he didn't have some iconic day, right? But I mean, an iconic finish, 
Don't get me wrong, but he didn't have a 400-yard killer day, but managed things better than Quinn Ewers, I think, especially at the start. Now, some of that wasn't Quinn Ewers' fault, right? Mm -hmm. Like, he was getting pummeled for the first quarter of that game. Once Texas adjusted and protected him, he played about as well as you could in that game. I think he completed, what, 17, 19 straight passes? He was really, really good. Um, Gabriel's start to finish was a little steadier, I think, and that's what ended up. And and then, obviously, he he had big cojones on that last drive, man. You know this from talking the last couple of years, and this is, you can dig up the records if you want. This is not hindsight. I love Dylan Gabriel. I love Dylan Gabriel at UCF. I I thought last year that outside, and I think I probably said this on our podcast last year, that outside of the obvious with Caleb Williams going from Oklahoma to USC, that Oklahoma won the quarterback transfer portal battle by getting Dylan Gabriel. I I think he's terrific. And you're right. He wasn't over the top great in terms of he missed a few balls here and there uh, a lot. And he didn't have a lot of times. And I'm not sure that he really had guys that got wide open. You know, they schemed a lot of stuff, got Drake Stoops, uh, you know, involved. They were running speed sweeps, you know, or jet sweep type looks. Uh, to Drake Stoops, you know, anything to try to get Texas moving a little bit. Got a lot of passes batted down, uh, you know, or deflected that probably was somewhat fortunate, uh, weren't picked off. But he kept making plays. And he's got a remarkable sense of when to go. He's not a great, great runner. He's a good runner and he's mobile. He's a good athlete. But he's got an innate sense of when it's time to go. And and he used it beautifully, uh, really. And I, I thought his leadership and his demeanor, even when things seemed really difficult for a long stretch of the game for Oklahoma, even when they were moving, it seemed hard, you know, for them to do so. And then they botched the, you know, the field goal with a miss hit or the, you know, you know, just scuffed the ground like my golf game or something before he hit the ball, whatever happened. You know, things kept going wrong and he kept making plays. And, you know, do I think they'll beat Texas again, assuming they play in the Big 12 championship game? I'm doubtful at this point. But turn in a performance like that, not just Dylan, but the, the defense, play, play like that, they can accomplish a lot this year. They, they, they've, got a, they've got a lot going for them. That was an impressive win. Yeah, no. Uh, and, and look, the... It was a little bit, the game was a little bit of an arbiter of SEC readiness, right? You and I saw Greg Sankey on the sideline before the game. That will be under the SEC logo next year um, in, you know, a, a marquee SEC game. Um, it's always one of the best games. It'll be interesting under that umbrella. But I think we we felt comfortable about Texas's SEC readiness when they went and won in Tuscaloosa because they were not pushed around by any means. They did the pushing in that game. I was not as convinced of Oklahoma's SEC readiness. I did talk to one scout. I'll tell you what. And um, usually when you talk to these scouts and they're right, they, they remind you about it, you know, the, 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 the day the game happens. And said so they, look, and we had Texas around a dozen NFL guys when we talked about them going into that game. And he, he gave me Oklahoma around eight or nine. And uh, right tackle Guyton will be probably their highest drafted guy. Uh, and, you know, but there is there is a depth of talent that's there. It's not... Um, oh my God, this is C.D. Lamb, right? You know, like th- those types of there. But the the, you know, the overall talent upgrade that Brent Venables has done has been significant. And look, 
Oklahoma's struggles last year were epitomized by Red River, right? That's when all the most eyeballs were on them. And Dill Gabriel didn't play. So, like, it just and, – and quite frankly, I don't remember who did, but it, they didn't have a chance. You know, like, they just – they. They uh they ended up in wildcat a lot in that last year because I think they had another injury uh, at quarterback too and they just you know they were just trying to get through the game you know they had no no shot great win for Venables a signature win and it really opens the door big picture and there will be more time other than today to talk about this but it is the quintessential uh, giving you the opportunity to get two teams into the college football playoff. Now, there might not be an avenue uh, for a second team, uh, given what might happen across the country, but you can almost feel it coming. Oklahoma doesn't lose again. If the game is close again, and this time Texas prevails, both will have compelling uh, resumes to be included in the college football playoff. But there are a lot, there are a lot of empty elevator shafts uh, in which to fall prior prior to that Sunday in December when we find out if you can do it. But at least that game sets the stage for it, if nothing else. Yeah, and this is to, to no fault of Oklahoma's because it was uh, sort of collateral damage from their conference move. But they're supposed to play Georgia this year, right? Mm-hmm. And instead they played at Tulsa, SMU at home, and Arkansas State. So it's a little bit like the Michigan resume if they had lost last year. Like, there just isn't, you don't, that marquee non-con really helps you. Like, Texas, because of their trip to Alabama, they can lose this game. Now, they got to win out, right? They're not getting in with two losses. But I don't think anybody flinches. And quite frankly, it could go down to one loss Texas versus uh, versus two loss Alabama. So they're going to win, obviously, right? Like, so those resumes are going to be, are going to be compared, um, now, if it's one loss, Alabama, it means they've beaten Georgia and gone to, uh, you know, and obviously gone through Atlanta to go. So um, I am happy that conversationally, big non-league games do matter, Reese, right? And they do matter for your resume. We can't get to the point where those games don't matter because right. they need to be played. Again, you and I don't root for teams. We don't root for programs. We don't root for leagues, but we root for good games, right? Absolutely. Like we're, yeah. you know, we want them... Um, you know, we want we want a constant slate of slates like we've had the last couple of weeks that are just rich with, uh, you know, teeming with opportunity, possibility, rivalry, etc. And so I uh, I just think the sport as we shift to this 12 team playoff needs to be in a place and we shift to look, the, there is creep. We've seen in college basketball more significantly, but there's creep to bigger league schedules. Right. Um, if we ever go to 10 league games for all these big leagues like the the intersectional connective tissue of the sport will likely die or really start to recede in my opinion. And I think that's a bad place to be. I'm, I'm not sure that it will Pete, because I think over time, I understand what you're saying, but I think over time, the one thing that's going to happen because you still see it in college basketball, they still play these huge games. North Carolina still goes out and plays Kentucky and anybody else who wants to play. Um, so you'll start realizing that the consequence of losing isn't as dire. And it is interesting from, from Alabama and Texas standpoint, as big as that game was in Tuscaloosa and a signature marquee win for Steve Sarkeesian and certainly put them uh, on the map and, and many people believing they'll still ultimately make the playoff. Those two teams wind up in the same boat now. They've got to be conference champions or they're not going. Because if they're not conference champions, and that means a second loss. And while if it were the last spot in the playoff, 
you know, one loss Alabama, one loss Texas, then Texas, Texas is and should get in over Alabama because of that game. But if it's, you know, one loss SEC champion Alabama, two loss non-conference champion Texas, Alabama's going. And, you know, because the head-to-head uh, can't mean everything, but it's got to mean something. Once we expend to 12, then they're both going. So, so you don't have, there's not as much punishment for playing that game. You know, to your point, had Alabama not played the game, then, you know, they wouldn't have, Texas wouldn't have that trump card uh, to hold over them. But, you know, it's, it's really, it's fascinating. I still think Texas is going to win the Big 12. Uh, I don't mean that disrespectfully to Oklahoma. I, I think they will. And I think they'll win the Big 12. I think they'll go to the playoff. But their margin for error is now gone. And, you know, that, that's going to be said for a lot of teams going forward. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I want to. I want to get your your take on something. Do you believe in? Um, are, are you a horror movie guy? I know that you you're not much for pop culture or anything like that. Are you a horror movie guy? Do you no, like- I would say of the genres, that's probably the one I dabble in the the least. I'm certainly like conversationally familiar with your Freddy Kruegers and your Jason um, from Friday the Thirteenth. But um, yeah, I would not say I have like sought out a horror movie in quite a while. Do Do you believe in jinxes? Oh, yeah. I like any sort of good cosmic uh, interference. Okay. Well, I want to give you a pro tip right here. Do, do you like one more question as I quiz you here? And there's a method to my madness. Um, do, you, do you like horse racing? Particularly, do you like the Kentucky Derby? I do. I've probably been to 10 to 12 Kentucky really? Derbies race. Yeah, me and my college buddies have gone over the years. What a party. Whew. Okay, great party. Do you, do you like to win the bets when you go there? I tend to, I don't bet. I only bet on horses. That's my only right. betting and I do. And I really enjoy a good, like, especially like Thursday afternoon, third race, random Paul McGee trained horse running down the stretch. I do like that. Okay. So you know far more about horse racing and betting on horses than I do, but I've got a pro tip for you. And if you remember this one simple precept, your time with me will not have been ill spent. If you go to the Kentucky Derby next year in the city of Louisville and you happen to see Sam Hartman there, whatever you do, do not bet on the horse that Sam Hartman bets on in Louisville because Louisville is jinxed for Sam Hartman. It is a house of horrors. It is the proverbial haunted mansion. That, again, I do I outlined on game day Saturday morning that with Wake Forest a season ago, he had gone in there and he had committed six turnovers, two pick sixes, and been sacked seven times. They had seen a 14-13 lead when he was at Wake Forest evaporate under a 35-zip avalanche in the third quarter. 35-zip. They got blown out. You think, okay, well, that was different. This is all different. Louisville has a new coach, whole new regime, different defense. Sam Hartman has a new team. Notre Dame coming in off a thrilling victory. 
But the jinx is alive, kids. Three more interceptions, two more fumbles, five more sacks. That means in his last two trips to Louisville, he's got 11 turnovers and he's been sacked, what's that, 11 times, I think, in two years. And they lost. Louisville Louisville ended up scoring their last three scoring drives, all field goals, 12 plays, 11 yards. And they got three scoring drives out of it to put the game away. And that was you know a catastrophic loss for Notre Dame. But for Louisville, Louisville was the one team on Saturday, the unheralded, unbeaten, and underdog, who came through and won. And now they're, they're the outlier. They're the interloper. They're, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, they're TCU from last year because they don't play North Carolina. They don't play Florida State. And they don't play Clemson, I believe. So now, whatever you think of Clemson, that's the, you still you've got to bring your big boy pants. That game snuck under the radar a little Saturday, huh? Which the oh the Clemson sort of toil with Wake Forest. Yeah, that that's uh, there. There are offensive issues there, and they they can't score. It's kind of wild. But Louisville, uh, Louisville stepped in. They stepped into the mix. Now I think they need to be careful Saturday. Uh, Pittsburgh's been dreadful. That's one of those sleepy games. You're coming off an exhilarating win. That being said, for the moment, they seized their opportunity, Petey. They did. They did. So we'll tie it back to your Kentucky Derby premise. (laughs) Uh, So Jeff Brom grew up in Louisville, son of Louisville, Oscar Brom's son, all the Brom brothers, uh, all obviously were the you know stars at uh, stars at Louisville. I used to tease my friend Pat Forty, who lives in Louisville, that he was the fifth Brom brother. Um, so Jeff Brom and I have talked about the Derby a lot over the years, just because I would go and he would always go wherever he was coaching and come back. And uh, Big Ten meetings would always be that first week in May, and it would piss him off because if you really go to the Derby, you really go on Thursday, yeah. and it's a three day party. Every you know the world that look watches the one two minute race. But it's, it's really Oaks. like an ex- what the Oaks, right? Yeah, the Oaks, Oaks is Friday. For the locals, right? It, yeah, the Oaks is Friday, big for locals. They give everybody off school, which is wild, right? And then Thursday is Thurby, which has become a pretty big deal in like the last decade. So Jeff Brom is the kind of guy who wants to be there right at the crack of Thurby and start uh, start betting and uh, perhaps enjoying a cocktail uh, in the uh, in the Louisville sun. And so. He would, oh, I would bring it up to him all the time. He'd be like, I can't believe they have these meetings this week. (laughs) So I have joked with him that he took the Louisville job. Obviously, it's his alma mater. It's hometown. But he really took it so he could clear out his schedule for the Derby because it just aligns with his sensibilities from from going there. That said, like, football-wise, we didn't know a lot about Louisville until this week. Right, the, the the schedule was there. They had almost stepped on a banana peel against Indiana at the end, right? Like they had, you know, just kind of they'd done enough. And uh, Jeff Brom's history has shown his teams will get up for big games and really slay some giants. But his history has also shown the odd letdown. It is his mentality is so aggressive as a play caller and a coach that sometimes you can get caught from behind. So uh, that said, like I thought he called a heck of a game on uh, on on Saturday night. Um, they moved and grooved. I was mystified, Reese, because that Louisville defense isn't exactly filled with, uh, you know, first-round picks, right? I was mystified how Notre Dame didn't get more push 
right? And smarter football, Cole Kubelik could probably explain that to me. Like smarter football people could come in and, and, and identify that. But if you have that dominant of an offensive line, Sam Hartman shouldn't be under a pile of rubble every three plays. And that's what it that's what it felt like to me. And you should be able to con- go down the road, control the game on the ground. You have one of the best backs in college football who is a classic ball control power back with some speed, but power first there now with Audrey Gustame. And they just, they, they were not able to do that. He had 10 carries. I think Notre Dame needs to decide what it is. And we've seen this. I think you could make the same assertion about Alabama right now. You heard a lot of talk in the offseason about offensive line dominance. And neither of them have. Notre Dame hasn't. They didn't. You know, they performed well enough. Ohio State, they've got dudes. You understand that. They performed well enough against Duke and then not well enough Saturday night against Louisville. And if you're going to have, you know, this, this identity that you're this big, bad offensive line and we're going to run the football behind you and we've got Audric Estime, I mean, they're not, he's not getting the ball enough. I know they've got a lot of backs. I know they want to get love involved and I applaud all of that. He's either your guy or he's not. And if he's your guy and that's your identity, well then do that. And if you can't do it, which might be the dirty little secret there, maybe it's what they want to do, but they can't. Then you have to find some different answers because now with USC coming in, uh, having lost the Ohio State game, having getting uh, whipped at Louisville, now here come the Trojans. Plenty, plenty to talk about there with some issues of, of their own. But this is, this is your last stand. Because otherwise, you're playing out the string. You can have a you can have a good season, you can have a decent season, or you know if things go sideways, you could have a bad season. This is the last stand from Notre Dame to do something really significant this year against against USC on Saturday, and it's a result of a of an overwhelmed performance by Louisville. There is one caveat that I'd like to say in defense of the Irish. I think it's extraordinarily difficult to play three high-level games emotionally. I don't know why the number is three, but just anecdotally in my you know lifetime of watching this sport and 20, 20, almost 20 years in the studio uh, navigating it and then nine years on game day, there's something about if you have to, you can get up once for sure. And if you have to get up again the next week, you certainly can. That third week is tough. I even when when we started devising the FPI formula, the football power index, um, the really, really smart math people, metrics people came to some of us and said, what's important to you? And I brought this was one of the things I brought up. I said, I don't know how you quantify this. This is anecdotal years and years ago. They looked into it and they said they couldn't quantify it enough to include it in the formula. So there's no formula for it. It's a feel thing. So I want to give Notre Dame a little, not a, not a pass, not for that performance, but a little bit of a, I understand it's hard. You know, you had devastation, exhilaration by saving yourselves at Duke, and then you got to come back into another cauldron of a team trying to prove itself, and they, they weren't up to the challenge. Yes, they... Uh, um... It will be interesting pushing forward, Reese, for, for Notre Dame and how they call a game on on Saturday against USC because 
USC's defense is so bad that will they take the cheese and try to slice them up in the air, or will they try to find that identity that I agree with you? Audrick Estime should be your identity. He is your best offensive skill player, and that's no knock on Sam Hartman. Sam Hartman's very good. Audrick Estime, with the, with the way they are constructed, should be their identity. They should take the air out of the ball a little bit now because you're not going to outgun Caleb Williams, right? And that's where you'd take the cheese. Like, can you do what they did after the Marshall loss last year, recalibrate, and their identity was tight end, tailback driven last year, right? And then, look, the tight ends played unbelievable this year. So it, it can it can be exactly the same. He's not Michael Mayer skill set wise, but production wise, he's not that far off, right? So I really feel like there's going to be some hard conversations about Notre Dame this week of like, what are we and how is that going to manifest itself against uh, against the Trojan defense that is just simply put not good? Um, let me transition. I'm going to ask a little hijack here. I'm going to ask you a question. So Alex Grinch, and we can get into Lincoln Riley and the Arizona game and all that stuff through this, but you know, the notion of firing Alex Grinch has been like, it's not some like, I'm like, I'm like discussing this, like it's some great insight, right? It's something that I think a lot of USC fans want to happen at them last year. I wasn't as vociferous about as some others were that it needed to happen because he didn't have good personnel, right? Mm-hmm. The personnel has been upgraded. The results have not been. So here's an, just an interesting philosophical question. Um, fire the coordinator. Like, oh, fire the coordinator. Like, will that make it better here? That's the hard question I think we've got to answer, and and USC will have to answer if they get shredded again at Notre Dame. Like, just because you fire the guy, like, was he unpopular? Will people rally around his absence? Do you have an experienced defensive play caller who can step in and call the plays? Like, is he an impediment to winning, or is he just not doing a good job, right? Like, the results indicate he's not doing a good job. Like, you have to identify a coordinator as an impediment to winning, Um, and you know, sometimes like like Georgia Tech demoted Andrew Thacker. Well, he's still coaching the safeties uh, at, at Georgia Tech with uh, with Kevin Shearer calling the plays. Like there are a lot of logistical things. Um, USC doesn't have a Cliff Kingsbury on defense. Like you know what I mean? A, a coach that experience like they do on the offensive side, sitting behind the scenes. So I just feel like I, I'd be curious of your take on that, Reese. In your if you look back on your lexicon of fired coordinators and you know hot seat mid season stuff, like do you think it would actually make a difference? It'll only make a difference if you need more effort and more attention to detail from the players. Whenever fans start calling for a coach, Alex Grinch or whoever, to be fired, I think sometimes we get this misconception of, well, these guys don't know what they're doing. They're not calling the right play. They're not studying the film. They don't understand the concepts and the offenses they're facing. Nothing could be further from the truth. Almost without fail, what's happening is that the players, for whatever reason, aren't executing the message that's being given to them by the coaches. That's not absolving the coaches. It's the coach's job to get them to absorb it and execute it. The one thing I would say that I would find in favor of not firing Alex Grinch is the players, uh, not after this game, but the previous one, I believe, came to his defense and said, hey, We know what to do. We're not getting it done, which signals to me that they are getting the message, but something is is getting lost from understanding what to do to actually doing it on the field. Maybe it's physical skill set. Maybe it's hesitancy. Maybe it's fatigue from SC scoring so fast when it has the ball, whatever it might be. 
I'm not convinced that that's going to fix anything because I don't know that I see a tremendous def- uh, difference in what I see now and what I saw from Lincoln Riley's teams at Oklahoma. You know, I mean, I know I know Alex was with him for for a period of time, but th- this seems to be a reflection from the top. And if Lincoln can remain undefeated and they go on to win a national championship and they win it this way, okay. But if it doesn't happen this year, then I think that self-evaluation starts with Lincoln Riley. Not firing him, but Lincoln himself saying, okay, why is it that we keep running into this particular problem with the defensive coordinator, whoever it might be, because, um, you know, Lincoln's made a change uh, in his career at defensive coordinator during his season. Do you Usually, if you do that, you expect to get an immediate bump and hair on fire, whether that's because the new play caller is calling more blitzes or fewer blitzes or different coverages or playing the one guy that thinks he should be in there and he, and he goes in and proves you right. You usually get the immediate bump. Will you get the sustained bump? Um from what I've heard from the players, I don't see that at USC yet. I'm not saying completely def- in defense of Alex Grinch. I'm, I'm not seeing that it looks like they're tuned out. They just look, they just look frustrated and they get beat. You know, I mean, that's kind of that's kind of the way it looks to me. Is like they just aren't quite good enough, and that might be the case. Weekend Review is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It ain't college football season without the delicious taste of an ice-cold Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Pete, did you know that one of our uh, local runners, uh, Nicole, who joined us at the Red River Rivalry, uh, we she took me around a little bit to some different things that I had to go to, driving the golf cart, uh, in, engaging uh, young woman, we were sort of joking back and forth. Big Oklahoma fan, so she was jubilant after the game. Uh, Oklahoma student about to finish there. And on Saturday, I told her, I said, you left out one really, really important detail about your life when you were telling me who you were and what you're about. She said, what's that? I said, I guess it turns out that her mother is some you know, executive at Dr. Pepper. And I said, I, I drink lab rat quantities of Diet Dr. Pepper. In fact, this giant tumbler that you see here is filled with that substance right now. I said, how is it that uh, I only have an ancillary deal and that they support the podcast? I need to be on a Fansville commercial. I, I need to have free product shipped to my house. Something, you know, you'd think. I mean, I've been a loyal customer of that for a long time. It would be fun to be on a Fansville commercial because they are great commercials. Right. Like, I just think they are hilarious. The the sort of apocalyptical one with the the transfer portal and like the boyfriend, girlfriend breaking up and saying we're recruiting better. Your your school is lower academic. state. I just like die because it is just like the perfect like to take these like intense year long (laughs) debates and distill them into those like three second scenes. It's I think it's great stuff. And that is that I am non sponsored. I don't drink Dr. Pepper. I just think they're hilarious. Yeah, you you really should. But anyway, um, they they whoever writes those has to be has to be a college football fan. They have to be that that's the type of nuance that you get in those commercials is not available to you by simply reading about college football and going, oh, Oklahoma hates Texas. You know, that is not available to you. You have to have it somewhere seared into your DNA, uh, much like our friend Ryan McGee, 
who joins us as he does on Mondays right now. Ryan, are we still rivals, Ryan? Are we still yeah. rivals? Oh yeah, are we, yeah, it, 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 but yeah. But but you, to Teresa's point, so I worked at NASCAR for a few years in the mid two thousands, and one of our jobs at NASCAR Productions, think NFL Films and Race Cars, was sitting down with advertising agencies and sitting down with production companies because they wanted to. Everybody wanted to be a part of NASCAR in the two thousands, and you knew very quickly who had done their homework and who hadn't and who wanted to do their homework and who hadn't. And so, yeah, you, you, to get the nuances, it takes a lot. It's why Talladega nights is a cinematic masterpiece because when, uh, I was, I was at the premiere. I remember, never forget. We were sitting in the premiere and no one would laugh because Mike Helton, the president of NASCAR, kind of stoic guy would not laugh during the movie. But then when, uh, Ricky Bobby's wife says, I'm a driver's wife. I, I do not work. All of a sudden, Mike Hilton started laughing. I was like, "They get it. They get our. They get. They get our people." So yeah, no, it's a, it's the nuance of it, right? <laughs> oh, Ryan, what did you? Um, we we've talked a little bit about Red River. We've spent some time on Notre Dame's issues. Sort of moved to to USC. There are a lot of things to talk about with USC. I was on a, a text chain with Pete and Stanford Steve. Pete, after nodding for the third time on the couch, said that he was checking out and would watch the rest of it. Uh, next morning, which he did, I texted Stanford Stephen there and said, "Boy, is Pete going to be sorry he missed this?" Because it was, <laughs> I mean, it yeah. was absolutely ridiculous. And still, man, I mean, after we're going to talk about Cristobal in a bit, Jed Fish not knowing the overtime rules, and he knew the old ones, you know, that you had to start going forward after the second overtime, and was uh, was confused on that. And I would maintain had to influence his decision not to try to win the game with a two-point conversion with their first possession in overtime when they answered so aggressive too. They answered SC's touchdown with a boom hit, you know, hit the first play touchdown touchdown pass. I'm quite certain was to McMillan. I don't recall off the top of my head now, but he was fantastic. By the way, um, you got to win it right there, man, or lose it and live with the result, and you kick it. And then you sit, try to send the kick team out the next time. It's like, oh, it was it was a fascinating uh, vintage Pac-12 after dark. Well, and people don't. It's hard for people to wrap their brain around the fact that, like, what you just said, like coaches don't understand the new overtime rules, or coaches don't understand whatever. And the reality is, is that you know the rules change every other year, right? The, the, the sit down in a committee. And by the way, the part no one understands is the coaches write these rules. Like everybody thinks mm-hmm. that there's a group of referees that sit in a room and come up with these rules or NCAA. That's not true. It starts with a group of coaches in a room that said, you know, it's the infamous right. Uh, Nick Saban sitting outside the rules committee trying to pitch stuff to slow offenses down years ago, right? And, and Troy Calhoun on the other side of the room going, no, 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 we need to do it. But, just, but the point is, is that the coaches write these rules, but that doesn't mean they understand it. And, and I, I talk about my dad all the time. I remember as a kid, we would go to NC State in Raleigh. We lived in Raleigh. Monty Kiffin was the head coach at NC State. Uh, Lane, by the way, was a total pain in the butt when he was six years old. So that's, that, that has transferred over. But, but right, but we <laughs> – the reason my father and all these officials, you go to any scrimmage in the spring, you go to any scrimmage in August, there are actual game officials that are working in scrimmages. And the only reason they're there is so that everyone understands the rules. You know, something happens in a scrimmage and, and you know, a field judge would go, no, 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 coach, you can't do that this year or whatever. Or they're there, they're there honestly for the officials to learn the rules too. So it, there's so much. I mean, when I was a kid, the rule book that dad would study at the swimming pool in the summertime 
was, you know, I'm, I'm holding my, my fingers about a quarter inch apart. Now it's a volume. And so it's a lot to digest. That being said, we all know the overtime rules. So the guy in charge of what we're going to do in overtime probably should know it too. But it's just, it's a lot, it's a lot, lot, lot to process. But yeah, I'm with you. And by the way, Pete, Timmy Chang knows this. He's the hero of my life because when my daughter was born in the fall of 2004 and refused to sleep, and back then I didn't travel on the weekends, and Hawaii, the old the old ESPN was a goal line plus or whatever it was where you could get the local coverage for an extra 30 bucks. Hawaii ended the year that year with like four straight home games that all kicked off at like 1 a.m., and Timmy Chang is the only reason I survived the first <laughs> two months of my fatherhood because it'd be me and my little screaming newborn daughter down in the basement watching Timmy Chang hang five touchdowns and 500 yards on, you know, Utah State or whoever. Back when that meant something too, by the way. Like yeah. now everybody throws for 500 yards. Yeah. Back then it was like yeah. uh, revolutionary. And, you know, Pete, I want to give, give Jed a little bit of a break too. It could be that he knew – and he just had a brain cramp in the moment. Things happen. You know, I mean, it, it could, I, I do want to point that out too. It could be that, yeah. Right. We, we, mean, talk, we talked about this with Notre Dame and the, and the substitution infraction or not enough guys on the field, whatever. The moment is the moment. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, how, how do you handle that? And it's a lot of people that all have to handle it. And if one person doesn't handle it well, then, um, you know, the, the whole card house falls. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, the, Jed's mistake was a uh, <laughs> was not a felony. Uh, it was not right, felonious. Right. It was a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. It was a mistake that ultimately cost him a timeout, which is bad. It was not good. But Mario Cristobal was felonious. Like that's just that yeah. is the, in the absolute unforgivable. No way it should ever happen. Type thing. Even like you mentioned, Marcus Freeman. Like, can you see how that happens? Absolutely. Yeah. Like those those sidelines are chaos. Uh, somebody used the phrase "fog of war" to describe. Like it's you know, and it's all happening. 30 yards from you too so you're just i don't know anyway having spent some games on sidelines and doing it a little bit more now you can understand why that you know why, why there's communication issues obviously no helmet to helmet there too so um yeah so jed's was not a great look but it did not cost them the game right and the other thing too is even had he been aware in the moment Maybe he makes the same decision. I want to point that point that out to you. Maybe he goes ahead and kicks for the tie. I just think that's the wrong call 99.9% of the time. And it sort of goes along with, in some ways, what we talked about with Jay Norvell in the Colorado State-Colorado game. The opportunity to finish the game is right there. But a coach's inclination, more times than not, is to extend avoid avoid the potential pain avoid the criticism and to say okay we're going to see if we can get to the point where dumb loses more than smart wins I'm not really ready to try to risk winning it right here I'm going to try to give you another opportunity to lose it and while there is some merit in that approach there is far less if any merit in that approach when you are Arizona and you have one play Right on the doorstep from the what? What is it? Right? Is it the two or two and a half? Three? Where's the? It's the two, right? For the yep, two point conversion, right at the two. Yep. So you've got two yards, two yards to beat SC. Maybe you don't because you know they got that was not the greatest play call in the one once they got into the two point tries. I didn't think, even though they've been successful with the play during the course of the game. But I digress. 
two yards away, chance to win, do it. And if you don't do it, you at least told your team, I believe, I believe in you guys. I thought we were going to do it, but boy, did we grow tonight. And right there, shoot your shot. Shoot, beat Travis Kelsey right there and shoot your shot. It might work out. <laughs> it might. It just, it, it just might. Well, and, and it goes back to, I, mean, I joke about Lane Kiffin, but, but he and I have talked about, you know, the laminated charts. And so many times I've made fun of the, his laminated charts. And if you watch him now as a coach, he definitely has them in his hand, but his face isn't in them all the time. And so there is also a point where, and he said this to me, he said there's a point where, and his father, the great Monty Kiffin, would tell us all the time, you have to actually look at the scoreboard and you have to actually look at the kids and you have to forget about the analytics. And, you know, sometimes you know, it's old school football. You're exactly right, Reese. It's, you know, we, have a, we have two yards to win the game and we have a direct line to win the game. And, and so at some point you just have to old school football coach it and not worry about the money ball aspect and just go, all right, What's the most logical thing that we should do here to just win football games? So it's crazy. Which, by the way, completely unrelated, I had already scheduled a call with Andy Demetrio, the play-by-play voice of Georgia Tech. I'm talking to him at like 3 or 4 o'clock this afternoon as we record this. I wish I'd talked to him this morning because I cannot wait to hear what he has to say because his call was amazing for Georgia Tech. But I cannot wait to hear what Andy has to say about, you know, We've all been there, but I can't imagine saying it to a microphone. Reese, Reese, you certainly have, which is all of a sudden it happens, and your brain cannot is like, "Am I really looking at what I'm looking at here?" But it's uh, mm. but what a what a I mean, what a crazy night! Can't go to sleep. That's the best part of this. The best and worst part of this year is you cannot go to sleep. Brent Key said he blacked out the Georgia Tech coach because there was ass after he was just like I just kind of blacked out like he's like I usually pay pretty good attention during these games (laughs) but 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 I blacked out and so I caught it on the uh on on the on the highlights the next day and I was just like no way he's that wide oh oh my gosh and it was Kim Kitchens who got beat on that by the way who's one of the best three safeties in all college football so uh again I'll fall tomorrow Cristobal would be clear about that but it was just sort of like to see a Georgia Tech receiver whose core isn't exactly going to be uh you know threatening uh threatening the green room of the draft get behind camp kitchens was like just one of those wow and then you got Haynes King lobbing it up there and that ball seemed to like hang like a little bit of a can of corn it was like Oh my, oh, he's, oh, you know, it was just, yeah, it was one of those great, great, great clips. It's like seeing a car crash. Like if you've ever, if you've ever been like standing on a corner waiting across a street and you witness a car accident, your brain doesn't process what it's looking at. And and it felt like even the people on the field, they couldn't believe they were in that situation on both sides of the ball. Game should have been over. And so it was, it was really, it was, uh, that's why it's the greatest sport in the world, boys. Because we don't want to be formulaic. Typically, I wrap up the podcast, we've got more to talk about, with dumb loses more than smart wins. But we're talking about it now. And this is the quintessential dumb loses more than smart wins. You want the attitude. You're, you're not quite sure of how to run out the rest of the clock. There's, there's, what, 33 seconds at the end of the play. It was third and 10. Take the knee. Drain it. Let the clock run down. You don't have to punt it. You can, even if you, I'm not sure exactly when the clock took off, even if you have to snap it again, you can run around, throw it as far as you can out the back. And the worst case scenario, and I don't even think that would have been an issue, worst case scenario, you give them one play. A coach's job over and over again, they say, 
We want to put our players in position to be successful. And when you bring risk into the equation, unnecessary risk into the equation, you are not doing that. And you are putting yourself in jeopardy of becoming the 2023 patron saint of dumb loses more than smart wins. Because not only did you put Donald Cheney Jr. in position not to be successful, to Pete's point about Cam Kitchens, you also put him in position not to be successful because he's on the sideline. He, he thinks the game's over. He doesn't think he's coming back in. Now, you have to be ready. I, I understand all of that. But mentally, you think your job has been completed and you're getting out of there with a victory. And then they make a decision that puts you in a bad spot and, and they paid for it and quintessential dumb loses more than smart wins. It, it harkens back to my good friend, Kevin Steele, who I think the absolute world of. Got a head coaching shot at Baylor, late 80s. I want to say it was 89, I think. At any rate, late 80s, he gets a head coaching shot. Baylor hadn't been any good forever. They're playing UNLV. They've got the game won. Game's over. UNLV can't stop the clock. Baylor's like down on the one-yard line, right on the doorstep. They can take a knee, and they have a, a hard-fought, hard-to-find at that time victory for Baylor. And instead, they go in for what, if memory serves me after all these years, I think that Kevin said they were trying to really send a message, attitude, touchdown, finish them off, all of that. Guy fumbles. UNLV picks it up, runs it 99 yards for a touchdown, and they lost. And now all your momentum's gone, everything's sideways, and now you see the same thing in some ways with Miami. So now instead of Miami talking about their undefeated start and you know this great showdown that they've got coming up with North Carolina, now we're talking about Mario Cristobal mismanaged the clock against Stanford in 18. Mario Cristobal uh, burned a timeout on the first play of the game you know, against Auburn a few years ago. He called back-to-back timeouts against Auburn. Then they didn't drain the clock, and Bo Nix beat him right at the end. And, and, now, and now look what he's done at Miami. And that is the, the discussion instead of your team. And that's why you do those things, and that's why they retired the trophy probably for this year. Oh, it's over. No, it's in, and I literally, <laughs> but you talk about, you talk about scrambling. My, my brain immediately was like, when was the Stanford game? Because I, I'm, I'm immediately, and I, I, I had, I had compartmentalized that deal. I'd stuck it in the back of my brain. All of a sudden I literally sat up. When was the Stanford Oregon game? And there's no way this was the same thing that just happened. And went back and found the game and found the film and, and yeah, it was the exact same thing. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a moment where it's not just, a mental mistake in the moment like we're talking about a minute ago it's a hitch in the giddy up right i mean there's a there's something in your brain that's not allowing you to do that and and it's uh you know now it becomes you wonder if it becomes you know the guy at the plate with the count and the situation and you know he's never going to hit it because now he's already his his brain is thinking oh here we go again here we go again and so it's it's crazy but how miami was that I mean, it was it was Miami is now. It's funny. I'm 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 I was sitting there thinking about last week. I was thinking about uh, all these '90s teams that have finally gotten it back together, right? It's you know here look, look at that top ten, and it's Florida State, and it's Tennessee, and it's you know all these schools. And I'm like, yeah, but poor Nebraska. But Miami's back, and literally it happened the next day. So they're not quite there. But 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 that '90s that '90s reunion party, Michigan, that '90s reunion party is rolling. 
And uh, but Miami just cannot. It's just there's a cap there, man. I've I've seen them in person multiple times over the last ten years, and every time I feel like I'm there, something happens that keeps them from. It's just it's the craziest thing to me. The, the internet is a magical thing, yeah. and the capturing of. Uh, Matthew Lee, their center. So I think he's a fifth, six-year guy from UCF. He's one of these guys, he looks like he's 24. He's got the long, straggly hair. And that shot of him on the sideline when he mouths, what the expletive are we doing? To me, is like, again, guys played a long, hard football game on a hot night in in a bowl of clam chowder there at Hard Rock, right? And he thinks they won, and he is unhappy. And the camera catches him at that perfect time where you just get that authentic reaction. And to me, that will be sort of the enduring symbol of this loss. So credit whoever in the ACC network found that uh, found that reaction on the sideline. Because to me, that was just like, wow, the, the raw, human, uh, raw human emotion of this. And uh, the internet also captured UNLV Baylor. 1999, Reese, you were a little bit off when, when, when oh, Kevin was uh, – when Kevin – 99, when Kevin was there. I have the uh, game story from UNLV's website. It was John Robinson's first year at UNLV, which was just like, which was just fun. And Kevin Steele, quote, hindsight is twenty twenty, and I know what the textbook says. There's no defense for it. It was just stupid on my part. We were trying to create an attitude of toughness, and we tried to hammer it in. Quote, it was a one in the million for something to happen like that. We got burned, and I take full responsibility full responsibility for it. We should have moved the clock at the end. Instead, we went for the extra points. We played with fire and got burned. It was an expensive mistake. So we're sitting here taping this on Monday morning. I will be curious to the degree of which Mario Cristobal falls on the sword, I think his media availability is on Tuesday. He kind of fell on the sword after, but like was a little mealy mouth about it, got to hang on to the ball. Like there were some things that were not full on. Now he said, you know, I should take a knee. But I remember from his previous clock management blunders, there was not a lot of ownership. Now, the Stanford situation, Ryan, if you just watched it there, and I correct me if I'm wrong, there was some ambiguity there. Like, it yeah. wasn't as, this was clean. This right. was, there was no ambiguity to what to do here. 1,000 times out of 1,000 from Pop Warner to the Super Bowl, you take the knee there, right? That's yeah. uh, inexcusable. The Stanford one, there was going to be some time on the clock, and they were going to have to punt, and you you could have you could have made an excuse. And the, the Auburn game, to me, for Crystal Ball, just epitomized the haphazardness of how they manage things. And I believe they took an extra timeout on a fourth down play because they thought they could get Justin Herbert back in the game and they didn't know the rules. Mm-hmm. Again, if you're a head coach, just like we talked about Jed Fish, you need to know the rules. Like, there's no gray area there. Or you've got, as I often reference, 37 guys in $98 polo shirts on the sidelines, right? You better have one of them telling you the rules. Yeah. Right? Like there's yeah. there's there's too many systems in place to not count the players, to not know the overtime rules, and to not know like a nuance, and that's a nuance. You're a son of an official. You probably knew that, Ryan, because you pay attention to the rules more than most. I I was in the press box that day. I did not know that was the rule. I was like, oh, it took another timeout to get Herbert back in the game. Oh, you can't do that. Didn't know. But it's not my job to know. I, I don't. I don't have any timeouts, and I don't manage games. So, it's uh, it will be interesting to see because the 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 Stanford game showed an error in judgment. The Auburn game showed this is a problem and a stigma for him. And look, it's been quiet right for a few years since then. Um, but you knew if it ever came back again, all those ghosts were going to come back. 
Yeah, not going to be quiet now. And if you watch, and you know, what we focus on a lot of times with the field judge, side judge, the official that's on the sideline in that box most of the game and interacting with the, with the coaches and everyone else, what we see is the screaming. But most of the game, the conversations are about this. You know, it, it's you know, it's 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 the defensive coordinator for whoever leaning over, going now, Jerry. If we try this, this, and this, will that be okay? No, coach can't do that. You know, or yeah, you're good to go. You know, and a lot of times those phone calls take place during the week, and and so it's yeah. It, it, but but the stigma is the thing. I, I remember talking to Billy Napier. For folks that don't know, Billy Napier uh, had one of the worst plays in the history of college football. You know, it was the miracle miracle in the mountain. They still call it at App State. He was a, he was a great quarterback at Furman. Furman had just scored in a huge game against App State, big time rivals. It might have been in the playoffs, two thousand two, and Furman decides to go for two late in the game to just have a three point lead as opposed to a one point lead. Now we're safe, whatever else. And Napier threw an interception that was returned the length of the field, and App State won the game. And Billy Napier, that was in 2002, so 21 years ago. And Billy, who I I I, I think is the nicest guy, and and I'm really I'm I'm rooting for him to succeed, you know, in a big time job like he did at Louisiana, but certainly Florida. But Billy, to this day, will tell you that any time it's time to to dial up a two point conversion, are we going to do this or aren't we going to do this in a game? He's like, I'd be lying to you if I said it wasn't in the back of my mind. Because it's just it's there, and and that's for all the accomplishments that he had at Furman, and for all the accomplishments that he's had as a coach, he has a national championship ring. But he uh, he people still bring that game up to him all the time. So there's no way it's not, you know. So so for the rest of time, man, Mario Cristobal, whether he admits it or not, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be that little devil on the shoulder, right? You know, are we going to do this or aren't we, coach? You don't know what you're doing, and it's uh, it, it's really fascinating to me, psychology wise. I think getting a team back after that too, um, there's no way to know until Saturday against North Carolina if you know how they're going to respond to it. I think that's a that's a big deal. I want to wrap up just a, with a couple of other observations, and since we're on this topic of officials, Tim Kirkchen always says this about baseball: go to enough baseball games, you'll see something you've never seen before. I'm going to tell you that I've never seen the play like that finished off the Alabama-Texas A&M game in which Jace McClellan, the Alabama running back, catches a pass momentarily. Didn't do it on purpose, but his knee's down. Milrow's scrambling. He's throwing it on a third down. Milrow catches it, but it pops away from him. And so as it pops away from him, he then stands up to catch it, re-catches it, and then turns and runs for the first down. As a son of an official, have you ever seen? I've never seen that before. Now, obviously, in the NFL, it doesn't matter because you you have to be touched down. But I've never seen that before in a college game. Had you ever seen that before, Ryan? Not. But when I see plays like that, the first thing I do is text Dad, and I have not texted him about that play. So my homework assignment before next week is I'm going to send him the play and ask him. And you guys know this. When I, Pete knows this, when I'm in the press box, whenever something goofy happens. Literally, everybody just stands and turns and looks at me, and they, and, 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 they, and, they, and I want to go. First of all, I've never officiated a game in my life. I did one South Carolina spring game as a publicity stunt, and it was a disaster. But I always, I literally just hold my phone up. I go, "Hang on, wait, wait, wait," and I go, "Dad says that was not a DPI." Okay, thank you. You know, and everybody moves on. So, so I'll send it to him. But, but no, the answer is I had not, and it was, and it was, it was, 
you know, kind of at the end of the game, and we all got a hundred things going on, and, and the 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 three thirty games were wrapping up. But it was I was with you. I was like, no, I don't. I had never seen that. So I'm going to actually uh, have lunch with Dad tomorrow, and we'll have a little film session, and we'll go over it. <laughs> that uh, I I think the one last thing about that game is that for the entirety of this run for Alabama. Alabama started seasons as finished products, largely. I mean, no team's a finished product, but I think you know what I mean. The, from, from opening day until wherever they finish their season, often in the national championship game, it's a matter of tweaking, overcoming you know, maybe some personnel, some injuries here and there, just little, little things. This gigantic improvement is not typically available to them because of where they started. This Alabama team, still not there yet, still a lot of warts, but it seems to have that vibe of the USC Sam Darnold team after Darnold took over at quarterback later, and then by the end of the season, everybody said, oh, they've lost three, but they should be in the playoff. You don't want to play them now. They're, they have that available to them, and that's part of the unusual thing about seeing them. By the same token, it's not as wide a gap, but I think the same thing is happening with Georgia, too. Uh, particularly because of the quarterback play. They were not a finished product coming out of fall camp. And I'm not suggesting they are now. But boy, did that look like a product that could finish off everybody with what they did to Kentucky coming out of the gate on Saturday night. I I put them back at number one because that's what I needed to see. I, I I still don't think they're head and shoulders above everybody else. But they're worthy number one right now. There's no question well, about that. I spent the the whole last week, and I said it on this podcast last week at least twice, which is I was at the Kentucky-Florida game and watching Kentucky walk into the stadium right behind our stage. You guys know they go from their football building 100 yards into the stadium. And I was like, oh, they got dudes. And then they pushed Florida around. And, and Florida has its issues, but being big on the defensive line has never been an issue at Florida and never will be. And those guys got knocked backwards the entire game. And so as soon as the games are with Billy Napier, it was like, hey, we just got pushed around. Like, it's just simple as that. You know, we, 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 I think we executed the game plan. We just got pushed around. And I talked to Stoops on Friday uh, because we were at Georgia uh, for Kentucky-Georgia on Saturday for Marty McGee. And, um, and when that game was over with, Stoops goes, man, we just got pushed around. Like they, we just, and, I, and I'm sitting there thinking, okay, this, this isn't hard math, you know. The Florida says they got pushed around by this team because they're too big and strong, and then Kentucky was schooled by a team that was too big and strong. So yeah, I think everyone had a window there to get whatever they wanted to get from Georgia, and I feel that way about Alabama as well. But but Georgia looked that was the team we've been waiting on, and there they are. I didn't take a lot of physics classes at Syracuse, but I think there's some mathematical formula that you just said that like yeah. Georgia is greater than is the the yeah. answer. Yeah. Sir Isaac Newton would agree with us on this. That's yes. all I know. I can't yes. tell you the math. <laughs> Dogs are good. Yeah. <laughs> really, really good. And 15 can spin it now. He, uh, that's, that's, uh, that team is coming around and developing and improvement. There is no rule against a team improving. And too often we think of everybody being a finished product from the beginning. Same could be said for Ohio State and quietly – I quietly, I think Michigan's still right there. And I still believe in Florida State, too. Yeah. No, I did not. What? I, I, don't, I don't doubt it. There, there were throws I might have 
Uh, well, I didn't bring it up last week because I couldn't speak, but there were throws in the <laughs> Michigan. What a oh, thanks. What a what a Thank what you. a glorious time that. it was for all of you guys not to have to listen to me. But there were three throws that J.J. McCarthy made against Nebraska that only one of them was a touchdown. <laughs> one of them was like middle of the field, tight end over the middle, and I was like, whoa. But that roll left, fire back to, holy cow. And you know they can run it. You know they're going to defend. We're, we're setting up for a lot of elite teams to be in the mix to win a national championship. Georgia, obviously, Michigan. You know, Penn State's going to have something to say about this. And also, um, no rule against Ohio State improving. Uh, and I think they will continue to do so. By the way, this is going to become a running bit on game day on Saturday morning uh, with with Ryan Day. Is Last week, I, when he was walking into the stadium, I said after the game, he's going to go, I'd like to know where Bobby Ross is right now. You know, that's going to that's going to become a running bit. I was. Uh, yeah, I was I was actually I was researching to get the exact I'll have to save it to let you know. But I was researching today, going back in the old school and say, OK, who's the right, the exact right Purdue guy to reference there? Because, you know, you can't get lazy about it. Well, it could be John Wood. It could be John Wooden, but uh, you know, you got to get the right era. You got to get the right level of notoriety and obscurity. But it's going to be a running bit for the rest of it because it's oh, it has to be fun. If I, I don't, really if like, I, I like if I don't mine. hear a George Perlis uh, when we get when we get to, to the middle of November, I'm going to be de- devastated. <laughs> It's too bad Indiana's gone because we could have yeah. used Coach Corso. Corso, I like where Lee Corso yeah. is right now. Well, the Jake Dicker already took care of that. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's true. That, that's all been resolved now. It's water under the bridge. It's uh, it, it, it's all it's all good now. You know, the thing is, is uh, I really I think Ryan Day's a great coach, and I really like him. And you know, if if he has issue with me poking fun at him about this, I'm going to go. Come on, man. You know, when, hey, look, I do it too. Sometimes we do something that uh, probably slightly ill-advised and you got to wear it. You know, you got to, the fastball comes to the ribs. You got to just take it. It's, you know, that's, that's the way it is. You tear Gary, Gary Moeller to shut up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, a quick pearl of story, story, and I'll leave you with this one. When I was working in Michigan, uh, back when you could do such things, the, um, the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue had come out sometime around the time that George was on the cover of Sports Illustrated uh, with a real mean mug looking face. And so I took the copies over to him and started, we did a whole piece about George Perlis as a Sports Illustrated model. He was a great sport about it. I, I liked George. What a, what a good guy, really good football coach too. But yeah, George will be mentioned when that game comes up for sure. <laughs> So anyway, I, I didn't. I didn't see yeah. that coming, Pete. I did not see the George no, Perlis. no George Perlis and uh, it, it, you know it start, it, it would have been off, Cindy Crawford back yeah, in that era, yeah, maybe. Yes, yeah, started off with Reese living in Michigan. Didn't know that. <laughs> didn't know anything about that. And then it started what? with going to see George. I didn't know that. Then just going to see George mm-hmm. Perlis. And then the fact that, uh, and then then when he said swimsuit issue, when you when you said that, Reese, you should have seen Pete and I both kind of did the like the the puppy dog head cock, like what? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> hey, do you remember I'm... when the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue was like super controversial? Yeah, oh yeah, I, know, how about I remember that? Dean Smith's wife went on a camp like a publicity campaign to end the swimsuit issue. This was clearly <laughs> before the internet, where those types of images were a little more a little more difficult to uh, <laughs> but, uh, ascertain, but. Uh, 
Did she try and end it because she saw George Perlis in a swimsuit? That's it. That's it. That was uh, it. It was over. Yeah, he, and, yeah. and to be clear, George was not was not in a swimsuit <laughs> for any of those. But Ryan, I'll leave you with this. I lived in Michigan in Flint, and I'm very proud of this. Right, 16 months. Guy who worked there saved my career. I would not be aggravating you two on this podcast if not for uh, our news director in Flint, a man called Jim Bliker, who's the the uh, finest person and best executive. I think I, I've, I've never run across a better one. Anyway, um, I was there during Mateen Cleaves, Mo Pete, Charlie Bell, all in high school. All right. And went to all those games and developed a relationship, which I maintain on some level uh, with those guys to this day. And when I'd gotten to ESPN, Mateen, the team came over and Mateen was there and I, I had told him when I was leaving, I'd gone into the locker room. I had to leave during the middle of the tournament run the year they won the state championship. And I said, my guys are going to send me the tapes. And I said, I expect you to bring it home. And he sent it. And uh, he, he gave me maybe the greatest compliment that anybody could give another person if you've ever lived in Flint. Uh, Mateen asked me, he said, where did you live when you were working in Flint? And I said, about a mile and a half from your high school, which was Flint Northern. And he said, Oh, you qualified to get the Flintstone tattoo. So I never did that, but just knowing that I qualified to get it uh, was, was, was quite a victory for me. That's big. There yeah. you go. Get, getting the Flintstone tattoo for me probably would have been a dumb loses more than smart, smart wins. wins. So <laughs> fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, we didn't take a dumb loss on that one. Yeah. Boys, Four clock management on that deal. <laughs> Reese took a knee right before getting in the tattoo parlor. Well advised. That's it. Boys, great to be back with you. We'll do it again on Wednesday when we spin this thing toward the weekend and our trip to the great Pacific Northwest and Seattle for Oregon and Washington. Yet another hate fest. Can't wait to dive into that one. We will on Wednesday. Thanks for listening to the College Game Day podcast. We always encourage you to subscribe so you never miss an episode, no matter when it comes out. As soon as it comes out, boom, right there for you to, uh, to take care of. I look forward to hearing what my record was on the picks, seeing how you guys uh, mocked me uh, over the over the course of the last picks episode, and now I'm back to defend myself. And we'll talk to everybody on Wednesday. Thanks for listening.